seats at uh, oh, okay. well, okay. the seats of Vermont and the countryside. <laughs> so I got you. Circuit. Some. Yeah, 1993 <coughs> when it started. So they have to raise, like, nope. Yeah, we are starting in lesson five. <laughs> that, what, where's that playing? It's going up. It's yeah, echoing. Like, it's echoing. Oh. Yeah. It sounded like it was. It sounded like it was out there. Yeah. 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 This one was like right here. Okay. That's so last time we left off uh, with lesson five, just sort of seeing how far we could get into it. And if you're following along in the teaching material, we're at the top of page 63. The backdrop was uh, God has brought his people out of Egypt and under Joshua's leadership is leading them into the promised land and then sort of running into all of the promises and problems that are going to accompany their lack of faithfulness. So we're going to pick it up there, but why don't we just pray quick before we begin. Father, we thank you for another opportunity uh, to gather and sit underneath the authority of your word, and we pray that you, O oh God, would speak to us through your word, that this would not just be an academic study, uh, but that it would cause our hearts to bow and worship before you. Amen. All right. I do. I do. I did. I did. What did I do with it? Uh, we're on lesson five. Okay. Lesson five, yeah. All right, give me just a second because the QR code was sitting right here and now it is not. And I don't know where it went to. It's in the app and the resources. Yeah, if you go to the uh, the app that we have established and are attempting to roll out this week with much fear and trepidation, <laughs> under resources for... School of Ministry, it is listed there as well. And I don't know where the QR code is. Here it is. Anybody need it yet? I shouldn't even put it up. I should say go to the app. That way y'all get there. Although, Milena, you're not listed on there, so you need a code. You're welcome. All right. Oh, we didn't have a sign-in sheet, and one of the reasons is the app says it's time to take attendance, and because you're all listed on there, then I can just open it up 
and go bing, 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 and select everybody who's here because it's kind of awesome. Uh, although we do have a sign-in sheet. Aiden, would you run, grab the sign-in sheet that's on my desk? Yeah. It's on a clipboard. We'll probably have to shuffle through. Okay. So they have entered in, or they're beginning the process of entering the promised land, but the lack of knowledge of God and his glory becomes an endemic problem for Israel in the time of the judges. We're just going to see it again and again. Uh, they'll do right for a little bit, and then they do what's right in their own eyes. Since they do not know the Lord, they follow false and pagan gods. God becomes angry. God punishes his people for sin. When they do cry out to God, though, he raises up a judge to deliver them. So we find in Judges chapter 2, verse 11 through 23, it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after the gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. They were in terrible distress, and the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to the judges, for they whored after the gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whoever the Lord raised up as judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. He saved them from the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved by pity by their groaning because of those who were afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after the other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. It's interesting. So think, think a little bit, just to diverge from the, the question of the material here. What was God's promise, covenant stipulation to his people as they entered the promised land? And how do we see the opposite of that reflected here? I guess that the same promise is made here, but the promise of blessing. What was the promise of blessing? Then how do we see that negatively reflected? If you obey, I'll drive out all the nations. Yeah, if you're faithful, if you obey, if you keep my commandments, if you worship me alone as the only God, uh, I'll drive out the nations before you. Like to a person, I will get rid of them. Uh, it's interesting when you look at this, you get down into verse 22, uh, where it says that there were some that were left from the nations when Joshua died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. Uh, just an interesting thing, it, as we look at our own lives, as we look at those who we are loving and serving and reaching out to, uh, so often we see God just 
uproot so many of those things from their lives. Just deliverance at the time of salvation or, or uh, even moments of sanctification that happen in their life. And yet it seems like one or two enemies remain. Like, have you noticed that? Uh, just one or two battles just left to confront you. And it, it is that call to walk in faithfulness and see the deliverance of God or to turn and go after those things in the world. So just seeing that same pattern and knowing that God was at work in that, that, that was part of this covenant plan of redemption for his people. So the book of Judges ends with these words, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The end of the book of Judges incorporates a description of the perversion of the priesthood it's a theme of the book of 1 Samuel as it begins. God has harsh words for Eli, whose sons are worthless men who did not know the Lord. They're blaspheming God, but Eli did not restrain them, we're told in 1 Samuel 3.13. So 1 Samuel 2, verse 31 to 35. Tim, you want to read that for us? Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. And then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and to all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this, and this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die in that, on that same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall, not, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and go out before my anointed forever. So God is giving a rather stinging warning to Eli, uh, the prophet and the priest, for the people of God, and yet his two sons had not walked in faithfulness, and he had failed to restrain them along that path as well. Uh, it's interesting knowing what is coming that God promises a, as a proof for my judgment upon your family, which is, I don't know if you had thought that, but it, it seems a little on the hard side, like you're not going to have an old man in your family. Everybody's dying. Everybody's dying young, except for one old guy who I'm just going to leave so he can weep his eyes out. I, that's just harsh, you know? But he says the proof of that's going to be your two sons are going to die on the same day. And what happened to Eli's two sons? They died on the same day. Uh, and he falls over and breaks his neck in hearing it. Uh, but God raises up another. God raises up a prophet, a priest in Samuel, who is, again, a better picture pointing us towards Christ who's coming. He's born uh, to the barren wife of Elkanah. Her name is Hannah. Examine the following description of Samuel and see if this is familiar language. 1 Samuel 2, 21 and 26. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah. She conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. Does that sound familiar to you? Almost the exact same description that we have of Christ at his birth. First uh, Samuel three nineteen to 21, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. 
All Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as the prophet of the Lord, and the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So one of the sub-themes that we find in the book of 1 Samuel is this exile. So it, we talked about Hophni and Phinehas, these two sons of Eli being killed. Well, the same day that they are killed, the Ark of the Covenant is captured, and it's sort of a picture. It's a analogy or illustration, if you will, of what is happening with the priesthood in this time, that the faithful priests have been captured. 1 Samuel 4, 1 through 11, the word of the Lord of Samuel, the word of Samuel came to Israel. Now Samuel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped in Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Philistines drew up lines against Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. What are they doing there? Well, they're making assumptions. And yeah, they're, they're turning the Ark of the Covenant, which is to be the symbol of the presence of God, that physical reminder of God's presence with his people. They're turning that into an idol. They're turning that into something that has power in itself. So the people went to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned between the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, who were already told, do not know the Lord, right? Were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Were they sincere and passionate in their faith and worship? Yes. Did that mean that God would then accept their faith and worship? No. Man, there's a good illustration in that for us today. Uh, as so many worship God, but not as he has prescribed. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. They said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with Every sort of plague in the wilderness, take courage and be men, O Philistines. Let us become slaves, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews who have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home, and there was a great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. We already kind of asked this question, what's the mistake they're making in bringing the ark into the battle? They believed that the ark itself had power. It was, it was a move towards icons, imagery, some sort of substitute for the actual God who said, you shall not make any graven image of me. And they turned the symbolic representation that God told them to make into a graven image. But God will not let his name be slandered among the nations. Therefore, while the ark is in captivity, uh, his hand is hard against the Philistines and Dagon, their God, which is just a kind of awesome story in 1 Samuel 5 there. Uh, so salvation history, the fill in the blanks. Joshua leads the people into the land. It's the first fill in the blank for you. God fulfills his promises. 
The covenant is renewed, and Israel's failure to drive out the inhabitants of the land, however, I'll just pull this over here so you can see it, results in compromise and sin. God's deliverance through judges is not enough. There needs to be a king in Israel, and the priesthood is corrupt. So God raises up a priest and prophet in Samuel, and the ark is taken into exile. Kind of a difficult process there. So the king, I'll leave that up for just a second while you guys fill in those blanks. The king of Israel is the next step in this progression. So God has brought them into the promised land. He's given them judges, and it didn't lead to their faithfulness. He's given them priests and prophets, and it doesn't lead to their faithfulness, and now he gives them a king. Samuel redirects Israel's loyalty to the Lord, so the Lord grants Samuel military success. But when Samuel becomes old, the elders of Israel request a king to rule over them. It's reminiscent of what Israel has already done in the time of Gideon. So we read Joshua 8, 22 and 23. The men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your sons and your grandsons also, for you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. What did they just do? They put Gideon in the same role that they put the Ark of the Covenant. They're elevating uh, him to a godlike status. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now we find in 1 Samuel 8, verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all nations. And the king was displeased. Uh, but this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, even as they are doing. And God allows them to do that, uh, to install a king over them. Even though it was a rejection of not just the prophet and the priest, but of God himself and his authority and rule over them. So Samuel anoints Saul as king over Israel. But in doing so, Samuel has some words of caution to speak to Israel. Basically, uh, we find in 1 Samuel 12, and we're not going to, it's kind of a lengthy passage. We're not going to take time to read it. Uh, but he says, uh, here's what is coming. This king will, in fact, rule over you. It will be a harsh ruling. He will subject you. He will tax you. Uh, he will take from you that which, that which doesn't belong to him. And yet that's how kings rule. That's how earthly kings rule. You've rebelled against God. Now this is what you get. It's basically the same uh, pep talk that every parent gives their kids. All right, here's the consequences. This is what you want. Now you have to deal with it. Stop crying. All right. Uh, so it makes it a little tough to ask this question if we don't read the whole passage. But uh, in it, we find some of these threads of biblical theology. Uh, we find a salvation history, again, emphasizing that the Lord is the righteous king and does righteous deeds. Uh, a charge that the Lord should be the king over Israel. Uh, you see in there the covenant structure and fearing God rather than fearing men, the people pleading for a leader to pray on their behalf and the election of Israel for the glory of God. 
As so often is the case in Israel's history, Israel falls into sin almost immediately after God's warning. This does feel like parents and kids, where you're just telling your kids, don't do it. Then you leave the house and immediately they do it. My favorite story of that was some friends of ours who ended up in the emergency with one of their children because they were going out for a date night. And as they walked out the door, the mother looked over her shoulder and said, don't jam any beans up your nose. And then a kid jammed a bean up his nose. Like that had never happened in the history of their family. But it just feels like that's human nature. There's this warning, don't do this. Bad consequences will come. Uh, And we just see that acted out in God's people again and again, which is a little encouraging, uh, especially since this is school of ministry and you guys are going to be loving and encouraging God's house, God's family, God's people. And you can really get to the place where Like that parent, you come home and go, what is wrong with you? How terrible is it possible for you to be? Uh, And just knowing that this is the pattern, and it's God's pattern of redemption. It's God's pattern to call his people to repentance. So Samuel had just spoke words of warning in chapter 12. Uh, Let's read a little bit in chapter 13 and 15 uh, what comes after that. Tim, you want to read those passages to us? 1 Samuel 13, 10, 14. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have, I, what have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me in Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. For Samuel 15, 20 28. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the, the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites, I don't know why I can't say that, Amalekites to destruction. But the people took, took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the, Lord as great, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. 
Thanks, Tim. All right, so just to point out a couple things that were in there, Saul makes an immediate excuse for his sin, and I love that he says, I forced myself to do it. I didn't want to, but it was the, it was the right thing to do. Uh, but he's going to like place blame all over the place other than himself. Uh, he's going to place it on the people. He places it on Samuel. You didn't show up. Then he places it on the Philistines. These enemies were going to attack us, and therefore... I had to do this. I, I didn't have any choice. I had to do it. And echoes of Adam. Yeah. Yeah. I just actually it's just echoes of all humanity. Like beginning with Adam and then all humanity, including ourselves, where we end up making excuses for our own sin. And we said, Well, I would never have chosen to do that, but I didn't have any other option. And it's just it's just evidence of a lack of faith and obedience in God. It's specifically, this given for our instruction, uh, we see it as an illustration of their rejection of God as king over them. So according to these verses, what is the Lord seeking in a king? Obedience, obedience right? Simple. Like that, that one's just a simple, straightforward in front of you. God was calling him to be obedient, not to be savior, not to be deliverer, not to be priest as uh, Saul is offering the sacrifices. Uh, he wasn't called to do that. Just obey and trust God. So we come to perhaps the most important figure in the Old Testament. Following after Saul is King David. Stephen Dempster said this again. It is as if all history has been waiting in this case, not for Abraham, but for David from the tribe of Judah. Or in the words of Walter Brueggemann, all history is regarded as the footnote to David. Uh, it, we just see this escalating progressive revelation throughout the Old Testament. Uh, these <clears throat> prophetic themes, these biblical theology threads that we're pulling on, and each one just sort of leads to this next pinnacle, this next mountaintop. And David is as high as we've gotten so far. So David and Saul have a rather striking contrast between the two of them uh, that we should see right away. So 1 Samuel chapter 10, 23 and 24, when Saul stood up among the people, he was taller than all the people, uh, his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. All the people shouted, long live the king. 1 Samuel 16, when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height or his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Verse 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. It could not be more clear in this description that what God was after was a man after his own heart, which is how it describes David in 1 Samuel 13, 14. Uh, the anointing oil and the Holy Spirit are the empowering that is needed for the king. The story of David and Goliath is rightly esteemed as an important story within the life of David and the history of Israel. Oftentimes, though, portrayals of the battle can often miss the central point. So let's look at some excerpts from this rather well-known story. But notice some of the similarities and differences between uh, the texts grouped together. 
This is a whole bunch of them strung together. First Samuel 17, uh, it's 21 to 26, 37, 43 to 47, and 49 to 51. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran into the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. Remember, David's not even a combatant here. Uh, he's, he's the young boy who's come to bring lunch to his brothers on the battlefield. He talked with them, behold, the champion... The Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. And all Israel, when they saw the man, he fled from him, and they were much afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him, give him great riches, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? Uh, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Verse 43, And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. In verse 45, And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give... Just a striking thing to say for a young boy. <laughs> like... Like, stop watching those movies, David. This is, who even put these thoughts in your head? This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I will strike you down, cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines to the, this day to the birds of the air and the beasts on the earth. And all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves, not the sword or the spear. And the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. Verse 49, so David put his hand into the bag and he took out a stone and he slung it and it struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face uh, on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistines with a sling and with a stone. He struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and he killed him and cut off his head with him. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. 1 Samuel 4, 2 through 4 says, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon. They set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early in the morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark. They took Dagon and put him on his back in the place. And when they back in place, and when they rose early in the morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground again before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon, both his hands were lying cut off at the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. All right. So reading those in that sort of string of biblical theology, what is the story of David and Goliath really about? What's that? The power of God, right? God's supremacy over his enemies. And I love that it specifically says that that uh, power is not tied to swords and spears. 
It's not tied to uh, that which is of battle right in front of us. Uh, God can do it with a stone out of a little kid's sling. I mean, obviously, David is more than just a small child at this point. Uh, he's probably somewhere in the vicinity that we saw Joseph as he is entering into Egypt. So probably 16, 17, somewhere in there. But that's still within the realm of boyhood at that time. And yet, uh, whether it's defeat over their gods or over their champions, it's the power of God that's on display, which is why it's so unfortunate that we often make this, uh, what are the Goliaths in your life and how do you stand up to them? How can you be bold? What do those five stones represent? And then we, we just allegorize that whole thing rather than going, our God can triumph in ways where it looks like there's no hope of God triumphing. Uh, because he is more powerful than anything else. All right, so before we move on, let's look backwards just a little bit at Hannah's song. As Samuel's going to be born, uh, and she's crying out before God for a child, and God promises he's going to give her a son. Uh, I think it's an important passage of theology within the book of 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. Tim, you want to read that to us? And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry, who were hungry, have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Awesome. So we, we mentioned a little bit earlier, as Samuel is born and growing up, we find the same description that we're going to find of Christ. Uh, what does Mary do as soon as she discovers this promise of being pregnant before God? My soul magnifies the Lord. I exalt in the God who saves, right? It's almost the same as Mary's Magnificent that we find in the New Testament. So David is granted military success over his enemies. He brings the Ark of the Covenant back from exile to the new city of God, to Jerusalem. Salvation history here, the fill in the blanks. The people of God ask for a king, rejecting the Lord as their king, and Samuel anoints Saul as king, Saul fails to obey the Lord. The kingdom is given over to David, who trusts in the Lord. David subdues the land and brings the ark 
into Jerusalem. We, we see this covenant pattern again and again. If you're faithful, if you walk in my ways, there's blessings. If you don't, I'm going to pull back those blessings and the hand of God will be against you. So now we see a faithful king who comes. Uh, we see for the first time the Ark of the Covenant begins to move into a place of prominence in Jerusalem, which will also be a strong uh, theological thread that will pull into the New Testament as well. So David's house. With the death of Saul, David is soon anointed king. Rather than taking kingship by force, as many of his successors do, David waits for the Lord to exalt him. The Lord was with Joseph, Moses, and Joshua, and now the Lord is with David. So we find in 2 Samuel 5, verses 1 through 4, and then 9 through 12, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, you are bone and flesh, you are our bone and flesh. In times when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us and brought us in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be the shepherd of my people Israel. You shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to him, uh, came to the king at Hebron, to King David, made a covenant with him at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. David built a city all around the Milo inward, and David became greater and greater for the Lord. The God of hosts was with him. Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedars and also carpenters and masons and built David a house, and David knew the Lord and established king over Israel, and they exalted his kingdom for the sake of the people of Israel. Tim, you want to read that next one? 2 Samuel 7. We'll just split these up. 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go do that all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Did you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have, not, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from, follow, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build, my, build a house for my name, now will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. 
but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. All right, so as we read 1 Kings 9, 3 through 9, uh, be thinking about what are the covenant provisions and stipulations, that, that pattern that we've seen where God says, it's me who's speaking, here's the covenant, here's the requirements that I'm making of you, what are the potential blessings and curses of the covenant? And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I've consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever, my eyes and my heart will be there for all time. As for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you, keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised to David your father, saying you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel, but if you turn aside from following me, you or your children... And do not keep my commandments and, your statu and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the people. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. They will say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold of other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. So what are the covenant provisions? What, is, what has God done up to this point? He's made David king. He's exalted David. He's given them military victories. He's promised to establish their house. Now that promise is passed on to Solomon, and the temple that Solomon has built is consecrated to the Lord. But what are the stipulations that God has given him? What are the requirements? Keep its commandments. Keep its commandments. Be faithful. Don't go after other gods, right? What are the covenant blessings and curses that he set before him? Yeah, specifically to this family of David, I will establish your throne forever. There will always be one of your descendants upon this throne. Uh, what happens if they're not faithful? I'll cut you off, right? Your name will be, a, I love how it says your name will be a proverb and a byword. <laughs> when I worked in the trailer factory, my, I had a really good friend who was a foreman and uh, we, I'm not going to use his name because we're recording this, uh, but we would lovingly and jokingly, when somebody messed up, apply his last name. Oh, you totally last named it. <laughs> and, uh, it, was, it was said in good fun. Uh, but that, he says, that's not going to be good fun. People are going to say, oh, you totally matted that one, right? <laughs> you gingrich that one to death, you know, like... Oh, you David that one, or you Solomon that one. Like your, your name becomes a byword rather than a thing of blessing. Now, here's a little bit of uh, redemptive history hope for us. What was going to happen with 
Solomon's descendants. They were going to depart from the covenant, right? They were going to break it, and God is going to cut them off from faithfulness in the land. And yet, what has God promised to do? Set someone on the throne of David forever because he was looking past them and their faithfulness. This was all pointing towards Jesus, right? It, who rules forever on the throne of David. So after God's covenant with David and David's military victories over the Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians, the Edomites, the Ammonites, it appears as if David is the ideal king. So ideal, like Adam, like Noah, like Abraham, like Moses before. However, David falls. Are we having live stream issues? Why? Tell them no. Yeah. All right. So I'm, I'm so grateful to have Josiah and all of his tech knowledge here. S second, yeah, it took a little while. Tech knowledge, tech knowledge, yeah, who? Uh, second Samuel 11 and 12 tells us of David's sin and its consequences. So the sins of David are widely known. He commits adultery with Bathsheba and then has her husband Uriah killed. Nathan rebukes him. However, the Lord emphasizes the sin of David is against God himself, although it had rather significant implications for one Uriah, right? Uh, God, who has shown such kindness in blessing him and making him rich, the wealthy king should have provided for his people out of his own abundance rather than taking what little they had. It's sort of the illustration that God's going to give through the prophet Nathan to him. Thus, David's sin against Uriah can be seen in juxtaposition to his kindness and generosity to Mephibosheth. The consequences of David's sins are that evil will arise within David's house and David's son with Bathsheba will die. Interestingly, the narrative of David falls in framed accounts of Israel's battle at Reba. So 2 Samuel 11, 1 hints that David as king should have been leading his armies that when the time comes where the kings go out to war David should have been with them it, it seems like that's what 2nd Samuel is pointing at Joab's instruction to David in 2nd Samuel 12 also suggests that David as king should be the military commander in Israel uh, we sort of see this this framing there uh, thus, we see that the king of Israel had two responsibilities. One, to represent the true and living God in war. And two, to represent him through keeping the law for the people. John Walton, in his book Covenant, writes this, The king's responsibility in this role as covenant administrator was to make sure that the Lord was being properly represented. This included ensuring that the covenant was being kept by the people so that God's holiness was appropriately represented. And two, remaining a subordinate instrument for the Lord's military leadership and deliverance so that God's kingship was appropriately represented. The king, had been the, the king had the responsibility to model adherence to the law, to serve as a model for Israel's conduct, as well as to portray the God of Israel to the nations. Unfortunately, we find in David him failing to do both of those things. Much of David's the rest of his story is described with trouble. God brings David's house and his kingdom. Like mankind after sin in the garden, 
Like mankind after the flood, Israel too begins to disintegrate after David's fall. Despite his failings, David does genuinely repent and seek the Lord. Later, biblical reflection upon David and his reign is surprisingly positive. So considering that David's sin is sort of the high watermark of the kingdom, and from that point, it's like the nail gets driven in. Uh, yesterday, I was, I was fixing some uh, deck boards on our back deck, and I had to cut out some old rotten ones and, and put some new ones in. And then where they, where they butted up, I, I screwed in the new ones. And as soon as I put a screw in the old one, it immediately splits apart. Uh, that's what we see in David's leadership. Uh, this is the moment. This is the sin that breaks it. Only that break on my board, thankfully, was only about an inch long. Uh, in the kingdom of Israel, it extends to all future kings. It, it is the schism that from that point, uh, no king will rise that high again. It's fascinating then that David is even spoken positively at all after that, especially given the cancel culture in which we live. Uh, so consider David's song of deliverance and his last words recorded in 2 Samuel 22, 1, uh, and then following through some selected passages through 23, 7. He said, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. Verse 18, he rescued me from strong enemies, from those who hate me, for those who were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands. He's rewarded me for I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God for all his rules were before me and from his statutes. I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness in his sight. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordering in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? All right, thinking in the context of David's sin, David's sin that has split the kingdom, what's the main point of those verses? God is still the deliverer. God's still deliverer. Yep. And that kind of spills over in David's words here. Like, I've done kind of well for myself in obeying you, but in reality, I'm kind of stuck. All right, so there's there's sort of a contrast between, and I, I think here's, here's an important point to kind of dive into 
in, in thinking about this line of biblical theology. Uh, David's reign is portrayed as being fairly awesome, and yet out of it we find some not-so-awesome things coming, right? Uh, and then here we have him saying things like, I've really done it. I have really kept your law. God has judged me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. So is that is that hyperbole? Is that is that sort of a whitewashing, like looking back and going, it was it wasn't that bad, you know, that like we see in political figures nowadays? Well, that's clearly not what I meant by that. What what's how should we understand this? What's that? Yeah, there there's a righteousness that is a New Testament concept of righteousness, of an imputed righteousness being put on him that you would think if you, how many times do bad things happen in this world and we think, I think most times wrongly, and we go, man, was it me? Did I do something wrong? Was it something bad that I did that, that caused this hardship to come to me? I mean, sometimes we do, but specifically... He commits adultery and the illegitimate child that is conceived in that adultery, God kills and God says, this is because of your sin. That should leave a mark on the human soul where you go, God, according to my righteousness, except for that one time, you've been faithful to me, right? That, that should get at least some parenthesis in the middle of that statement. That this is sort of a glimmer of what is to come, a, a characterization of God's salvation and God's righteousness in a righteousness that Luther is going to describe as being an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness to us. Uh, this is something in God's forgiveness that God puts on us that supersedes our ability to keep the law of God, to be righteous before him and i love that he says according to my righteousness you have judged me like that this is it it, it strikes me in our, our men's prayer meeting on wednesday mornings as we pray through the psalms how often we read these psalms that say god deal with me according to my righteousness according to the integrity of my heart be faithful to me and i always think like oh man no <laughs> god please don't do that Please don't judge me by what's in me. Judge me by what's in Christ. And yet David looks at that and goes, that which is given to me in Christ is in me. This becomes my righteousness. It's kind of fantastic. We don't want to lose sight of our sinfulness, but we also uh, don't want to live as those who are constantly like, nope, I'm the worst. I'm terrible. No, I've been made righteous in Christ. It's a beautiful picture that we're not going to see played out for a few hundred years yet until Jesus comes. So the opening chapters of 1 Kings describe David's death, the establishment of Solomon's kingdom, and the building of the temple. The glory of the Lord fills the temple as it had filled the tabernacle, and the temple has been dedicated. The narrative ends with this benediction from Solomon, 1 Kings 8. 56 to 61. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good that he had promised, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord, our God, be with us. As he was with our fathers, may he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all the ways 
and to keep his commandments, his statutes, his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servants and cause his people Israel as each day requires that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Let our hearts, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as to this day. All right, so how, how does that prayer that we find in Solomon, how does that relate to this uh, thread of biblical theology that we've been studying here? Any ideas? Like, where, where do we see this coming as an echo of something that we've heard or seen before? Yeah. Yeah, a, re, a restatement, especially of the covenant blessings that we find given. Uh, so think specifically Joshua leading the people in the land. As I have been with Moses, so I will be with you. And my, my power is going with you. My glory is going with you. Uh, to Before Joshua, back to Moses. You're going to go stand before Pharaoh, but you're not standing in your own feeble strength, Moses. I'm going with you. I'm going to put my glory and my power on display as I deliver them out of that place. All the way back to Abraham where he says, I'm going to establish you, O barren old guy, as a nation, a nation of people for my own possession, right? So we, we just sort of see that fleshed out here in Solomon's prayer. And I, I love that in Solomon's heart and mind that we sort of get this public glimpse into, even knowing that sin is going to creep into Solomon's heart, even in all of his great wisdom as well, and steal his heart away in these foreign wives following their foreign gods. And it, it steals his heart away from the Lord. And yet you see this line in him of longing for God, please let this happen. All right, one more passage to consider. An important reflection from the Psalms on the Davidic covenant, Psalm 89 uh, 20 and 21, and then 28 through 36. Tim, you want to read that for us? I have found David my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. 28. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever in his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my laws and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod of their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever his throne as long as the sun before me. I love the language of that that shoots past David's faithfulness to, well, as long as the sun endures. <laughs> right? So uh, just kind of awesome. It's a great reminder 
that even though there's going to be sin, even though there's going to be judgment, even though we're going to see not only kings removed, but entire nations of Israel and Judah removed from their land into exile. Uh, and in fact, the nation of Israel will cease to exist until our day and age. Uh, God has said, I have sworn by my own holiness, I won't lie. Uh, therefore, as, as long as the sun exists before me, the throne of David is going to exist. Why? Because it's pointing towards Jesus. All right, so thinking of this, this thread of salvation history, uh, God's promises, he promises the kingdom to David. He establishes his covenant with him. David, however, sins and his house is divided. David's son Solomon succeeds his father, builds the temple, ushers Israel into unprecedented wealth and power. It appears as if God is raising Israel above all the nations. So moving from that to tracing a biblical theology of kingship and the Messiah. Everybody got those fill in the blanks? The biblical thing of kingship extends much further back into redemptive history than just King David. In fact, the kingship of God, the kingship of humans he created in his image is seen in the very first chapter of the Bible in Genesis 1, 26 through 29. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing. It creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female created them. He blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over everything that, that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed um, on the face of the earth, every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them as food. After the fall, Adam and Eve enter into sin, However, we have seen in the Pentateuch that the theme of kingship begins to center upon a single person. So at first, kingship is really hardwired into humanity, into Adam, into Eve. Take dominion over the earth, subdue the earth, rule over the earth. Uh, and as we move on throughout human history, uh, that kingship, that authority, that dominion, although we see elements of it remaining in all of humanity, uh, still we find it consolidated into a person, a king, which is pointing us towards a Messiah. Some of the earliest uh, messianic texts in the Bible are found Genesis 49, Numbers 24, Prophecy of Jacob, uh, and the Oracle of Balaam. So we find Genesis 49, 8 through 10. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stood, he stooped down. He, he crouched as a lion. Crouched isn't a word. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart. Ah, the scepter, right? That's king language, right? Not just uh, he's ruling, but now the scepter of a king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him and to him who shall be the obedience of his people. 
Numbers 24, 15 to 19. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the word of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheath. Edom shall be dispossessed and Seir. Also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy survivors of the city. All right, so what are, you, what are some of the, the things that we learned about this kingship in those passages? What, what did you hear in there? Echoes of kingship. Where it comes from. Yeah, it's going to come from Judah. Good question. That's a good question. So the, the question, in case you didn't pick it up in the recording, uh, knowing that this king would come from Judah, why would they accept Saul from the line of Benjamin? Uh, anybody want to take a stab at that? Well, when or, Samuel, he, or I guess maybe a better question would be why would God choose the first king as a, as a from the tribe of Benjamin? Because God chose... Saul first. They were going by outward looks of of Saul. The I think it said that the I think we read that the people had chosen Saul and Samuel just mm -hmm. went to God and said, Should we do this? And God said, Go ahead, that's what they want. Because Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was good in appearance. Am, am I incorrect in that? No, that's that's true. Yeah. And the people also were far enough away, straying far enough away, where they were, instead of wanting God as their king, they were wanting an earthly king. So they would have, it seems like they would have strayed far enough away from what was spoken before, what was prophesied before, to where that wouldn't have mattered. Well, like that they, sorry, like many modern day Christians, we don't know our Bibles that well either. And back then, they probably had the, they had the prophets and they go to temple, right? So they would have the, the things read to them. How many of them actually would have remembered that or known that or been memorizing, except for people who were training to be in the temple? And on top of that, I think God was trying to make an example of, all right, here you go. You know, this is what you get. As a, maybe a form like he did with the judges, maybe. You know, I don't know. Sure. Yeah. In one of, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but in Samuel's statement, like he's conversing with God, and God's like, yeah, these people have been unfaithful to me. Let them pick this horrible king. Yeah. And I think Samuel curses them when he anoints the king. Like, he says something not too good about it. And he's like, this is going to end up bad, just so you know. Yeah. And, like, there is... It's going to be harsh over you. There's yeah. obvious... There's never a moment where we're supposed to be like, Saul was a... Like, he was a good pick. Because yeah. right from the start, we get him... Like, he's a giant. He's head and shoulders taller than everybody. And he's hiding. Never like, trust tall people. Yeah. They're yeah. awful. Tall people are bad. No, but we, we see his character from the immediate get-go as a coward. Like, he's just a big, 
coward when it comes to anything like that. So it's, it's never implied that he was even a good king. And it's like from the very beginning, it's like this was a bad idea and they're going to suffer the consequences. And then David is fulfilled afterwards. So I think, I think there's a certain amount of he allowed them through their unfaithfulness to have a bad king. And then because of this, this prophecy of Judah, he fulfills it and brings the line of Judah in. It could, it could be that he was using Saul as a punishment yeah. rather than... That's what I meant. Rather, yeah, I, rather than a, a fulfillment of Scripture. Yeah, I mean, they went... They went if you go back to um, what, what we were talking about earlier is that they... The problem was that they were rejecting God, God Himself as as the true uh, and righteous King. So, out of their own desperation and desire to be ruled by somebody other than Him, they just they just needed a king. They just wanted somebody to be a king. And here's this guy who looks looks good, um, it's charming, has has all the goods. They're like, let's let's get this guy. I think it was less that they were like looking to make sure all the boxes were checked and they were just desperate to have uh, a king. I think that that's reiterated throughout the passages we've covered in their desire to reject God uh, as, as king. They just they just wanted and needed a king. They didn't necessarily care if it was the right one or not. Yeah, doing what we all do in our sinfulness or looking at the right here, right now yeah. pleasure instead of what God has promised and how God's going to fulfill it. Yeah. See, it's not just our generation that wants immediate satisfaction. That's right. It's so many. Now, here's here's a, a well. First, I think it, I point back to Sproul. Already, the primary reason we misinterpret the Bible is not because the Holy Spirit failed to do His work, because we failed to do ours. So, what did they fail to do? To follow God as king. They rejected God as king. They said, we want a king that looks like the world around us. And that's what they got. And God says, okay, well, if this is the pattern that we're following, I've promised that a king is coming. Now's the time. Now I'm going to give you the legitimate one who comes in that line of Christ. Uh, But my second and probably more important comment to make on this is... Tony asks a question, and we have 45 people lining up to answer. And I ask the questions in here, and then it's just crickets in the background. I'm just very angry right now. I'm just kidding. Okay, moving on here. We're, we're going to try and uh, zip through the rest of this lesson, then we'll take a break here. Uh, or do you guys want a break now? How are you doing? Good. All right, here we go. Fast forward. Messianic expectations are developed and expanded through redemptive history and the Old Testament. Uh, So here's a couple of the more well-known passages speaking of the coming Messiah. Psalm 2, 1 through 12. Timmy, you want to read that for us? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, 
and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with your Lord with I think it was meant to fear. Serve the Lord, and then just dot dot dot. As well, continues. I think. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. Oh, there we go. He be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Oh yeah, there we go. Good. In Isaiah nine two through seven. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as the, they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Awesome. Uh, so, John Salehammer, basically wanting us to pull back uh, high above the text, connecting all of these things together, said, viewed as a whole, Genesis 1 through 11 follows a recognizable compositional strategy that links together an otherwise loose collection of independent narratives. The strategy consists of attaching poems to the end of each narrative. Is there a similar compositional pattern of narrative and poetry elsewhere in the Pentateuch? The answer is that there are four major collections of poems in the Pentateuch, Genesis 49, Exodus 15, Numbers 23 and 24, and Deuteronomy 32 and 33. Several features of these poems suggest that they are part of the compositional strategy similar to that of Genesis 1 through 11. The focal point of each of these major poems is promising the coming messianic king. The foregoing observation suggests that the author of the Pentateuch intentionally uses the larger and smaller poetic texts in the Pentateuch to establish a context for reading the narratives. The, it, now think about this, because that sounds like kind of academic language. Uh, if we made no announcements on a Sunday morning for what people should do as far as like standing up, giving the offering, you know, things like that. We just sort of have markers that we have built into the compositional structure of our Sunday morning. So people come in, they're just sort of milling around, they're sitting and talking, and the song starts playing, the poem starts to play, and what do they do? Focus all their attention on this. We get to another part, well, kind of, yeah. It, after four and a half minutes, they focus their attention on the front because they had really something important they were talking about. Fellowship is awesome. Uh, we, but we have different parts where they know, okay, automatically I'm, I'm going to respond in such a way. It, what he's arguing is the writer of the Pentateuch has actually built 
these first five books along that same structure. So the, the poems are actually telling us what we're supposed to be doing and thinking from this section and transitioning to the next. All right, so I don't know where I left off here. Uh, Thus the poems focus the attention on the central theme of the need for God's grace and redemption, uh, small poems of Genesis 1 through 11. At the same time, they link those themes to the coming messianic king and his kingship, the large poems forming, forming the central structure of the Pentateuch. This suggests that one of the central issues of the message of the Pentateuch is the coming king and his eternal kingdom. And it, you find this again and again in Old Testament writings, especially in the prophets, as they will, they'll be speaking to something uh, on a relatively localized and small uh, scope, and then they will sweep past that into some messianic coming. On that day, it is a frequent language that you hear in the Old Testament that sweeps us past that. All right, so Psalm 2, verse 2, speaks of the Lord's anointed. Uh, this word in the Hebrew is translated uh, with the Greek word Christos, uh, the anointed one, which in turn is translated in the English word Christ in the New Testament. The Hebrew word for anointed or anointed one is sometimes also translated by the English Messiah. Therefore, Christ and Messiah are equivalent terms. In the Old Testament, both Saul and David and the Israelite kings in general are called God's anointed ones, which refers to the practice of anointing a king with oil, uh, signifying God's choice. Thus, the anointing of oil might be called the sign of the Davidic covenant. In the New Testament, the most common title for Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. The name and title could be translated with the phrase Jesus Christ or even Jesus the Messiah. The phrase, it, some people just thought that was his last name. Uh, the phrase picked up biblical theme of kingship and asserted that Jesus is the Lord's anointed one. He is the king. Another passage we've already considered pertaining to the kingship are the Deuteronomic regulations. How do you like that word? Deuteronomic regulations of the king, the following passage. Deuteronomy 17, 18 to 20. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left. They may continue in, as long as his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. After that, we find another messianic prophecy. So fast forwarding into Ezekiel 37, 21 to 28. Tim, you want to read us that one? Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around, and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all, and they shall be no longer two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned. I will cleanse them, and they shall be and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. 
They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary, in, when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Stephen Dempster, again from Dominion and Dynasty, says, From Adam to David, from the creation of the world to the building of the temple, which will give new life to the world, from which the divine rule will extend to the ends of the earth, Genealogy and geography, dynasty and dominion. This representation, the story of Tenka, a story that leaves Israel uh, still in a type of exile, waiting for someone from David's house to come and build a house and bring about the restoration of all things. This overall message presented in a storyline with commentary shows that the Tanaka is a book and not a rag bag. This is a bizarre quote, guys. I'm just leaving off with that. All right, so going on, God's plan is to raise up a kingdom in David. We should delete that quote out of future incarnations of this. It's just, man, okay. Uh, in later lessons, we will study the coming of Jesus, the proclamation of the kingdom of God, and God's salvation in much greater detail. For our purpose right now, however, let's examine an interesting juxtaposition of text describing the coming of Jesus. So Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent his two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, um, Why are you doing this? Respond to them. The Lord has need of them, and uh, he shall send them at once. This took place to fulfill was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your kingdom is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, uh, on the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Clearly, that is king language. Uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus the Nazareth, of Nazareth and of Galilee. Revelation 19, 11 through 21, When I saw heaven open, behold, there was a white horse, one sitting on it. It's called Faithful and True. In righteousness and judge. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire on his head, are many diadems, many crowns. And he had the name written on one of them that no one knows but himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule over them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. In a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the king 
the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who is in the presence who had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So of these two passages, which one resonates more with the messianic passage of the Old Testament that we have looked at today already? Where do you hear those echoes? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, in Revelation, we hear some of those lines echoing through. Uh, as opposed to the Messiah being humble, offering peace, dying uh, a death of atonement that we sort of look back and anticipate, uh, this one echoes a lot of what you heard uh, of a coming king who is radical. <laughs> He's sitting on a white horse he has a whole army behind him that literally does nothing but watches as he strike down all the people of the earth with a sword coming out of his mouth. Like that, this whole thing of like calling the birds to come feast on their flesh, like that's Old Testament sounding language in there. Uh, Jesus reigns as the son of David and a new Adam. Succeeding where Adam had failed, God gave his anointed one all authority so that God the Father might reign over all. 1 Corinthians 15, 10 through 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who've fallen asleep. For as by man came death, and by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all died, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then the coming of those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to his Father, destroying all destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet the last enemy to be destroyed is death for god has put all things in subjection under his feet when he says all things are put in subjection it is plain that he is expecting expected man i can't read it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. There is, however, a significant strain of texts in the New Testament which tell us that those who believe in the Messiah will reign with him on the new earth. So, 2 Timothy 2, the saying is trustworthy, for if we died in him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. Revelation 3, 21, the one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on the throne as I conquered and sat down my father on his throne, with my father on his throne. Revelation 5, 9 through 10, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So uh, here's the flow. Humanity, David, right? We're bypassing Saul entirely, thanks to Tony's incredibly helpful question that shoots us past the kingship of Saul, who was an illegitimate king, to David, who was the image of what was coming in Jesus the Messiah, 
to the end of all redeemed humanity uh, ruling and reigning with him. Uh, less, I've always, always thought this is a weird thing. Like, why, why, do we, why do we get these promises of ruling and reigning with Christ in his fulfilled kingdom? And I think it is actually less about king as we think, like, I want to be the person in power. I, I want to rule over this, which is why it's always struck me as weird. It's actually shooting all the way past that back to the Garden of Eden of Adam and Eve and all of perfect humanity subduing the world, having dominion over it, uh, rightly taking their place in God's created order. All right, so... Uh, all of humanity in Adam were charged with being kings and queens of creation, being made in the image of God. And after the fall, kingship in Israel was focused on David, who was a type of Jesus, the king to come. Jesus establishes a new reign, and he invites those who would submit to him to join in reigning over that new creation. All right, let's take a break for a little bit. Stretch your legs. Go to the bathroom. Dance merrily about. And when you come back, we'll start with lesson six.